G'day everyone. It has been a massive week for many of us, hasn't it? Especially my home. I don't know if you can relate to this. Yesterday, very, very tired kids, extra tantrums, um, extra mummy and da- daddy tantrums. Uh, it's been huge. And just want to underline again the small army that it takes to run Summerfest. Some of you actually taking annual leave just so that you could do it. It's been such a great time and continuing today. Uh, some news just to bring to us though, Andrew, our senior pastor, and his wife Kathy were so disappointed not to be able to be there through the week because they've been very sick. Uh, so sick that they've actually needed hospitalisation and special care there, and especially Andrew who's had a serious uh, form of pneumonia. And so uh, they're now both at home and recovering there, but it has been quite a serious thing. So. I bring that news to you for your prayers, for those of you who call this church your family, uh, keep them in your prayers. How about, before we jump into this, I do that now. Our Lord God, we do bring Andrew and Kathy before you especially and ask please for your healing hand. Uh, we thank you for the amazing privilege it is for us to have the health care available that we do and we trust that you We'll use all kinds of means to bring healing. We ask for that, please, for them, for them quickly. Uh, We pray for patience in the meantime. It is uh, such a reminder that all is not well in the world, uh, that things are deeply broken, especially the topic that we come to consider right now, Lord God, the reality of war and violence surely screams to us that the world is not right. And so I want to ask on our behalf that you might guide us into truth. Jesus, who came claiming to bring the truth, please guide us into it. In his name I ask. Amen. Well, this series that we're kicking off this morning is the result of us talking to our friends and family, our neighbours, as we ask them the question, what influence do you think Christianity has had on the world? I know many of you have had those conversations. Maybe you've come along because you were part of one of those conversations and we're going to work through the top responses there. This morning we're considering the issue of war. It's a common response. And the line often goes, religion causes all the wars. Religion causes all the wars. Um, Maybe you've felt like you've been hit with that stick before. Maybe you wield that stick. Christianity is a religion. Jesus is the founder of Christianity. Jesus causes wars. Now, let me give you my answer to this question, has Jesus caused peace or war, right up front, and then spend the following time defending it. Has Jesus caused war? No. Has Jesus caused peace? Yes. Jesus came as the Prince of Peace. There is no record of him ever carrying a sword. In fact, as he goes into the capital city of Israel, Jerusalem, to that account that we just had read, as he comes claiming to be a king, he comes on a tiny little donkey, his feet dragging along the ground. You've only got to read the New Testament to see that Jesus himself was not a violent man, nor did he incite violence. We'll look at some examples shortly, which makes Jesus very unique as the leader of a revolution. Contrast him to other leaders of revolution, take Muhammad, say, who entered Mecca at the front of a 10,000-strong army. 
And though there was little blood spilt on that occasion, you look at the man Jesus and he is clearly unique as a non-violent man. Now, one thing is for sure, history is littered with wars. And much blood has been spilt in the name of religion. Christianity is a religion, Jesus is the founder of Christianity. How can I say that Jesus has not caused wars? Well, as we go through this time, I want to bring some nuance to the popular lines that are so easily thrown out, and I actually want to myth-bust some of them. Uh, let me start there by busting the myth of the line that religion causes all the wars. Uh, if you consult a three-volume encyclopedia of historians who have gone back and catalogued 123 wars and divided them into categories, they find that of these 123 wars, 7% were religious, 93% of them not. This idea that, well, if we could just get rid of religion, if we could just get rid of people loving God and dogma more than they love people, then we'd get rid of all the violence and all of the conflict. It's not true. And surely, the most vivid illustration of that not being true is the 20th century. The one that has just gone by. This was a period, actually, which compared to previous ones, was less religious. More and more people turning away from religion, particularly Christianity, turning from it to atheism, to humanism. We had the bold announcement from Friedrich Nietzsche, a philosopher, that God is dead. Then came Hitler, who leaned on Nietzsche as he exterminated six million Jews. Stalin, who leaned on Marxism and killed maybe 20 million Soviet people, as did Mao, leaning on Marxism, killing 45 to 50 million people. The 20th century was the bloodiest century in all of human history. It's not religion that is at the centre of the mass bloodshed. It's easy to give a throwaway line about religion causing all the wars. It's much harder to argue it. So what does cause wars? Lots of things. Ideologies. Marxism, I've mentioned. Imperialism. Nations wanting to extend their power and influence across the globe. Resources. I want your land, I want your water, I want those plants that will grow drugs. Land, tribalism, greed, power, pride, even pettiness has started wars. Let me tell you about the war of the pig and the potatoes. This really happened in the year 1859. An American farmer shot a pig that was eating his potatoes. Fair enough, you might say. The pig belonged to an Irishman. The Irishman was well connected to the British colony. And before long, we actually had this thing escalating so that the Americans are sending soldiers, the Brits are sending three army tanks. Now, thankfully, it actually didn't lead to bloodshed, but look at how quickly wars can be triggered. Well, of course, there were underlying factors, yeah? It's not just a pig and a potato. And this is the point. The causes of war are many and complex. 
be wary of any simplistic explanation for them all. Yes, religion does cause wars. But interestingly, as these historians categorised even the religious wars, you'll see that 4% Islamic, 3% are the religions. And the very quick point here is that not all religions are the same. Another quick, easy, popular statement, all religions are the same. You can't argue that, you can't demonstrate that. Now, hang on, you might say. What about the Crusades? Particularly in the popular mind, this is the big one that people will go to, to point out that Christianity, Jesus Christ, is responsible for much bloodshed. Now, what can we say here? Well, firstly, if you're not familiar with this part of history, the Crusades were military campaigns fought, as you can see, almost a thousand years ago now. They were initiated by the Pope and fought by Western European Christians to reclaim land in the Middle East that had been occupied by Christians, but Muslims had come in and overrun it. And as the Christians went to fight the wars, the Crusades, yes, there was much bloodshed, much horror, lots of horrible stories. Now, why did they happen? There is no way I can even come close to an adequate uh, summary here, but let me attempt. Uh, the, the reasons are mixed. One of them was for defence. See, uh, Christians in the East, who were under attack, being overrun by particularly uh, Muslim Turks, cried out to the, to the uh, Pope in the West for help. And so the Pope is actually coming to the aid of people who had not initiated a war, the war had come to them, to defend them. Uh, it would be a little bit like Australia attacking Papua New Guinea, wanting to overrun them, and the Papua New Guineans calling to the Indonesians, help. And the Indonesians sending military campaigns to go and fight the Australians who had taken Papua New Guinea. There's something of that going on. There were pilgrims who would go from the west to the east peacefully just to go to the city who would be raped, who would be killed, who would be tortured. And so one of the reasons that even by today's standards we would go, that's a justified reason for war, defence. But... There are other reasons for why the Crusades were fought. There was wealth, there was honour, there was the hope of land on offer, there was good old-fashioned greed. For some people, it was an adventure. Let me get out and get on this bloody adventure. He's also a significant driver of them. It was framed as a holy war. The Crusaders were framed as a holy war with the promise from the Pope that all sins would be forgiven by God if you would give yourself to the crusade. Here are some of the words of the Pope of the day, Pope Urban II. He announces, All who die by the way, whether by land or by sea, or in the battle against the pagans, shall have immediate remission of sins. This I grant them through the power of God with which I am invested. Undertake this journey for the remission of your sins with the assurance of the imperishable glory of the kingdom of heaven. 
This is why the Crusades can rightly be claimed as a religious war. Because many of the Crusaders who go on it were understanding it as a holy war, something that would please God. The leader of the church, the Pope, had said as much. Now, as an aside, for those of you who do understand biblical Christianity, there's at least two horrific things about this statement, yeah? It's the classic mistake that is made of Christianity, which is, it's by what you do that you can please God. Let your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, hopefully he'll then accept you. Couldn't be further from the truth of biblical Christianity. The second big problem is, who does the Pope think he is? The Bible gives him no authority to forgive sins, to pronounce sins forgiven by taking part in this war. This is not biblical Christianity. And yet, the leaders of the church at the time framed them as a holy war. And one of the problems was the ordinary people like you and me couldn't read the Bible for themselves. And so they're taking from these leaders something that's actually inconsistent with the Bible. In fact, this is one of the big reasons that the Crusades are messed up in some of their justification. Not all, but in some. It's bad Bible reading. Let me give you that so it can kind of connect to us as well. It's bad Bible reading. If you're new to the Bible, then this book is actually a collection of books. It's a library, but you could categorise it into two main parts. You've got the Old Testament, which is about the first two-thirds, And it focuses on God as he is at work, particularly among the ancient nation of Israel. It focuses on history, particularly around 1500 BC to about 500 BC, about a thousand-year period there. Then you get the New Testament, which is much shorter. It's of the first century, and it focuses on what God is doing in the person of Jesus. Now, here's the thing. When you turn open to the Old Testament, you do find wars, You find Israel at war. But more than that, you find God commanding these wars. And so what you have there are what you might call holy wars. What do we do with that? What do we make of that? Well, three significant things to bear in mind. Again, very quickly. The first thing to note about them is they are not racial. There is absolutely no sense that the people of Israel are morally superior and so racially driven to wipe out another race. In fact, quite the opposite. God says of them, it's not because you are any better than anyone else. The second thing to note is that it's not imperial. This is not Israel trying to extend her power and influence across the globe. But the third significant thing to note is that these are actually very particular moments of God's judgment. Particular moments of God's judgment. God, who is compassionate and gracious, who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, actually brings what he has promised will be true for all people, a final judgment. He actually brings that into a moment of time. But here's the thing. Not after this nation slipped up once. Not after these people were kind of rebellious against God for 10 years. It was 400 years of the people rebelling and rejecting against God, impatiently bearing up. But then he brings a moment of judgment and he does this through his people, Israel. 
These are direct commands from God through Israel to bring judgment. Now, interestingly, those holy wars, those commands of God for his people to fight them, were in the Bibles of the very first Christians in the first century. And yet you don't find any of them looking to these wars and using them as a model, as a justification for them to fight wars, to be violent. In fact, quite the opposite. As they are persecuted, they fight with prayer. Why is that? Well, because they rightly had understood that in the coming of Jesus, something radical has changed. It's changed everything, including how to think about holy war. We'll come to that in a moment. But fast forward a thousand years and the Middle Ages, and for various reasons, the true reading of the Bible had been lost, particularly among the people. And here you have church leaders pointing to these models in the Old Testament as justification for going to fight against the Muslims. Holy war, like that of the Old Testament. It's bad Bible reading. Just as the New Testament was misunderstood and actually twisted and distorted. Let me give you a few examples here. The New Testament uses military language. You've read it, you'll find it. But it's painfully obvious that they're metaphors. It's military metaphor. Let me give you an example here. Written to early Christians, the Apostle Paul says to them, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Apostle Paul quite painfully makes it obvious that he's using metaphor by explaining what each bit of the armour actually means. And yet, a thousand years later, people had taken this and were now applying it literalistically. This is Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, Not the St. Bernard that your dog might be named after. He came a little later. Uh, This is the Bernard that was part of starting the Knights Templar. If you've read about that period or if you've read the Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code, conspiracy theory stuff. Listen to what he says. He says, The knight who puts the breastplate of faith on his soul in the same way as he puts a breastplate of iron on his body is truly intrepid, fearless and safe from everything. So forward in safety, knights. And with the undaunted souls, drive off the enemies of the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. Now, literally in the New Testament, the cross is the wooden stake upon which Jesus was nailed, was executed by the Romans. But it becomes a very profound symbol in the New Testament. But it's clearly a symbol. Jesus himself says... Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow me. He is not imagining everyone dragging around a wooden cross. It's a symbol, it's a metaphor. And yet Bernard uses this literally 
to whip up support for the Crusades, which actually takes its uh, meaning from crux, the Latin crux, the cross, Crusades. Bernard says, Take the sign of the cross and you shall gain pardon for every sin that you confess with a contrite heart. Again, offering something that the Bible doesn't speak of. One of the reasons for the Crusades was bad Bible reading. There were many reasons. Some of them, I want to put to you, even by today's standards, if we understood all the factors, justified. But the point is, it's mixed. It's complex. It's messy. Reading the Bible badly has never gone well. And the thing about doing this is it's, it's not a secret science. Any communication requires us to work hard to understand what the person communicating is meaning. Yeah? As someone speaks, as someone writes, it's, it's trying to understand what do you mean. The same is true as we come to understanding the Bible. And key to that is understanding context. Context. So I tell you that uh, yesterday... I pushed an old woman to the ground hard. And you go, you pig of a man, you know. But then I go, oh, no, no, it was down at Erin Affair and she was walking out through the car park and a car is about to come and hit her and I pushed. Didn't happen. This is a story. I'm telling it rather realistically, aren't I? (laughs) But if if it did really happen, are you now really down on me for pushing an old woman to the ground? Context is so important and I want to put it to you that all of us have this bias where we can zone in on one thing, ignore the context, so that we can make it do what we want it to do, which is different to what is really happening. All of us, all of us, I've got to be really careful of this. The same thing happens as we come to the Bible. Which is why we're a church, which if you're new, you'll, you'll hopefully figure this. We want to work really hard at understanding together what the Bible is saying. Let me give you an example of how context matters here. Because it's possible to take some of Jesus' teaching in isolation and come to the wrong conclusions. One of his most famous parts of his teaching is, turn the other cheek. Yeah, Maybe you haven't even read the Bible, but you've heard that line. Take the other cheek. What does he mean? When someone wrongs you... Don't seek revenge. Be a person of peace. Turn the other cheek. In fact, he goes on to say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Oh, radical teaching. Radical if you've ever actually tried to do it. And the more that you've been hurt, you'll work out how radical that is. This is radical love that Jesus comes and preaches. In one sense, pacifism. But it would be a mistake to then say that the New Testament has no place for force, violence, even war. So when we turn over to a book called Romans, written to the first century Christians, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. At the time of writing, that's the Roman Empire. They're not Christians in the first century. Christians, be subject to the non-Christian governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. 
there is a place, according to the New Testament, for the sword as a symbol, a symbol of punishment, of authority, of force. But what we've got to be careful here is, hang on, Jesus says turn the other cheek, but then the Bible says there's a place for... What's going on here? It's the difference between personal and corporate ethics. Personal and corporate ethics. And often we can make category errors here and and so mess it up. Imagine I'm a school principal and uh, I come home and I realise some young punk has stolen my bike. And I know it's some young punk because I see them riding around the community on it. How do I apply Jesus' teaching here or the New Testament's teaching here? Well, not seek revenge. But then I go to school the next day as a school principal and I learn of a student stealing the bike of another student. And I know it's this student that had been found guilty. I am not, as the school principal, to say to the victim, just turn the other cheek. Just pray for them. Why not? Because in this situation, I am the authority that is to work for justice. The state is the authority that God has put in place and given a responsibility, not to tell their citizens to turn the other cheek, but to bring justice. Now, of course, the state can get so messed up where this doesn't even work. But it is imagined in the New Testament that there is an appropriate measure to bring justice, unfortunately, which will involve force, maybe even more. This actually goes further back than Christianity. It was Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, who first developed the idea of just war. You might have heard of that, where there are just reasons for going to war. The Romans then further developed it. It was part of their Pax Romana, not perfectly executed. But then Christianity also clearly sees a place for it. Be wary of simplistic statements. It's too simplistic to say that, well, the Bible has holy wars, I'm a follower of God, therefore it justifies my holy war. But also be wary of the Bible, the New Testament, has no place for any force or violence even. Here's what we can say really clearly because the New Testament does. It's that the kingdom of God is not of this world. We heard Jesus say that in the reading that Loz brought to us. My kingdom, says Jesus, the kingdom of God is not of this world. It's from another place. Therefore, it does not advance by military might. Not by individuals, not by nation states. So how does it advance? Well, listen to the weapons that followers of Jesus are called to pick up. This is the New Testament. We see that for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. How does the kingdom of God advance? What part does the follower of Jesus have in that? Well, it advances by the word of God. 
the Word of God. And so it's speaking, it's writing, it's engaging in ideas and thinking and debating and reasoning. Do you see the emphasis there? Which is why, again, as a church, we work really hard to try and set aside many of those usual distractions to use this time to think together. Not just to mindlessly swallow what some preacher gets up and says, but to think together. Because that's how God says his kingdom advances. The speaking of his word, most specifically, the sharing of the gospel of peace. How does God's kingdom advance across the globe? Through the sharing of a message. Gospel means message, means news. It's not religious language. It was part of the first century vocabulary. It became known as the gospel of peace, the news of peace. What is this message? Well, let me give you a quick hit at it, but we'll unpack this some more over the coming weeks. It's the message of what God has done in history. That he has shown up, made himself known by actually sending his son Jesus. And get this, sending his son Jesus to fight a war. To fight a spiritual war. Friends, there is a reality to our existence, to you, to me, to us beyond what we can taste, see, smell, touch. There is a spiritual dimension to us. I think you suspect it. Jesus says, yes. There is more to reality than what you can put under a microscope. As helpful as that is, Jesus says, yes. And God actually sends his son to come and fight a war in this unseen reality this spiritual reality, to fight a war against what the Bible calls sin. Sin being the willful rebellion of us against God. Failing to honour him, to live for him, to give thanks to him as he is due. Which is not just a little bit rude, a little bit unthankful. God isn't just a little bit offended. The Bible brings this really stark message, it's that we've actually made ourselves enemies of God. Enemies of God. I find that as I talk to people on the Central Coast about this stuff, this is the number one thing that is just like, are you serious? People aren't walking around thinking of themselves as enemies of God. Maybe a little out of touch, maybe it's been a while, maybe I'll let him do him and I do... But enemies? Well, Jesus comes in saying, yes. Every single person of every tribe, of every people, of every nation. But God, in his love, comes not to destroy his enemies, but rather to rescue. Actually sending his son into a world that is hostile towards him to save them. Friends, this is your God, a God who has so loved you that he has done everything necessary to restore you into relationship with him by the way of forgiveness. How does this all work? Well, it actually happens in the most violent event in history, the execution of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about how that works 
in coming weeks. But know now that this is at the centre of what Jesus came to do, which is why he doesn't throw off Pilate as he's about to be executed. This is the very reason that he came. Let me skip forward, though, to actually show you the result of Jesus' work. This is written to first century Christians who have responded to this message, to this gospel, like so many of us here, people through the centuries have. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified is a court term, a legal term. We've been declared right, innocent, nothing to account for. How? Not by being a good person, not by going to church, not by being religious. None of that will work. But through faith, by actually trusting, looking away from ourselves to another, to a saviour, to Jesus. The result? Peace with God. Peace with almighty, holy God. God, restored into loving, intimate relationship with God. If you think Christianity is about rules and ticking boxes, you've not understood what Jesus came to bring. He came to bring peace with God for you, for me, by the way, of forgiveness. Is how it's put in another letter, again, to early Christians. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, This could be said about anyone living on the central coast. But for the person on the coast who responds to Jesus, now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. God can look on you, on me, and delight. Though if you're honest, if I'm honest, there's a lot in me that is not delightful. He can delight. Friends, Jesus absolutely caused a war in the spiritual forces, in the spiritual realities. He came to fight against what would condemn us forever. The problem of our sin, the work of a real enemy, Satan, the great enemy of death. Jesus came to overturn it all. Which is why, as you come to actually understand what Christianity really is about, biblical Christianity, the Jesus Christianity, it's not about political reform. It's not about Israel, politically. It's not about social change. In the first instance, all of this will trickle down in influence. At the heart, it's about you, it's about me, having a relationship with God. Enemy though we are. And as this happens, this is then to transform us, followers of Jesus, into people of peace. Not perfectly, not completely, bit by bit, slowly, sometimes even painfully. But the New Testament calls us over and over to be people of peace. Why? For at least, let me just give you two reasons. One is... We take Jesus at his word that his kingdom is not of this world. That the kingdom of God that Jesus brings us into, that he invites us into, is not here on the central coast. It is not the promised land, though we might like to think so. That you can't find it anywhere in the Middle East. It is of another place. Did you hear the words of Jesus? And that one day he's going to bring it 
is going to bring it in all its fullness. History is not just going to keep dribbling on. God will say, enough. And he will remake the world, healing it at its core, at every sphere. There will be no more strife. There'll be no more violence. There'll be no more war. And so one of the reasons Christians can be people of peace now is that we take Jesus at his word, that that's coming then. See, how can you turn the other cheek? If this life is it, then you've got to do absolutely everything you can to seek revenge now. This is your only chance. But actually, this is not easy, is it? But we can entrust justice to God who will see that it will be done. Which means we don't have to have everything now. In fact, Jesus warns us against that. It means we don't have to win everything now. Jesus has won and has brought us to a kingdom that is yet to come. There's the first reason. But the second reason is just that it sinks down deeper and deeper and deeper how much God has loved me, Jez. Any of you followers of Jesus, it, it just sinks down deeper. That God has so loved me to bring me back into relationship with Him, to bring peace to that relationship, that starts to seep out imperfectly. But bit by bit by bit, it does actually transform us now. It transforms individuals, it transforms families, homes, it transforms communities. So, what is our best hope of peace? Well, again, I want to be sympathetic to you if you're sceptical to all of this. Really, the big question is, is humanity basically good? That's the big question. Is human nature basically good or not? If we are basically good, then the answer to peace is more education. It's, it's more cultural sensitivity. The answer is to get rid of religion, dogma and so on. And at time we'll arrive at peace. We've been trying that. We're still trying that. It hasn't worked. It's not working. It will never work. Because I take it. Jesus' diagnosis is true, that the human condition is fundamentally broken. Wars will always be with us. At times more, at other times less. A professor of history and sociology of the 20th century, Jacques Ellul, said, violence is the order of necessity. Violence is the order of necessity. What a depressing statement. I put it to you, what a realistic statement. Ah, oh, but can't we just bomb the right people? <laughs> can't we just get rid of all the haters and then it'll... Well, in the words of one of my favourite songwriters, Michael Franti, you can bomb the world to pieces, but you can't bomb it into peace. I had to use the American can't there because he's American. You can bomb the world to pieces but you can't bomb it into peace. I'd say amen. Jesus holds out the promise of peace, peace with God now and into eternity, 
peace with all of creation in the life to come when this promise of the Bible will come true. He will judge, that's the Lord God, between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Oh, bring on that day. Jesus says that day is coming. There is a hope of knowing this peace, of tasting it even now where even whole communities can be transformed. Let me finish with this story of the Kimyal tribe, of the Kurupan people. Um, They belong to a remote village in Papua, Indonesia. And one of of our local expressions of deepest, darkest Africa, a group of people who had never come in contact with Western civilization until the 60s, very recent, when two missionaries, two white missionaries, came into the village with the gospel of peace. It was their goal to live in the community. The community welcomed them, the tribe welcomed them. They they set up a home there. They started learning the language so they could share the gospel of peace, uh, so they could translate the Bible into their own tongue. One day, however, a neighbouring tribe came and killed them, the missionaries. A hundred arrows in one of their chests. And so whilst they'd started to share the gospel of peace, there was still much more to do. They'd started translating, much more to do. And so in the 70s, the work continued. More missionaries headed into the region to continue the work of sharing the gospel and translating the Bible. One of them was named Eleanor Young. She's an amazing story, worth chasing up, better than anything you'll find on Netflix. Um, She's been carried there because she had polio as a kid and so couldn't walk, being carried there. And she speaks of the challenges of translating the Bible into the local tongue. These people who have now embraced the gospel of peace and want the Bible in their own language. Uh, she speaks especially of the difficulty of translating abstract words. Maybe you know this if you've translated into other languages. The the word of forgiveness, for example. How how do I translate that word? Well, anyway, listen to her story here. Let me quote her. Theological terms were even harder. Kimyal culture had no concept of forgiveness. Let me pause there a detail to be mindful. This was a violent tribe. This was a place where cannibalism was practised. This was a place with all that... Now, if cultural sensitivities is supreme, then let it happen. And and what basis do we have, actually, for being concerned about cannibalism? It's just survival of the fittest. Ah, we don't believe that, and yet we... Anyway, that was the reality of this place. No concept of forgiveness. Revenge was their top cultural virtue. Finally, I heard a story from an attempted raid that morning. It gave me the perfect phrase. Kurupun pastors and elders had heard that warriors who hated the gospel were coming over the trail to attack the Christians. The church leaders armed themselves with bows and arrows and hid in the bushes at a certain spot in the trail. At the right time, they jumped out of the bushes with their bows drawn, surrounding the would-be attackers. When those men were thoroughly terrified, the church leaders said, 
In the name of Jesus, we relax the bow. What a perfect picture for forgive. My translation said, God relaxes the bow drawn against us. What a story of transformation. The bringing of peace. Yes, by white people, but this started as a Middle Eastern thing. This is now bigger in non-white parts of the world than it is. It's not about the people. It's not about the colour of the skin. It's about the message of the gospel of peace of who this God is. Jesus has not caused wars. People have. 100% of wars have been caused by people. And it's the reality of a world that is at war with God. But God has so loved the world that he has sent his only son so that anyone who would look to him as saviour, God would relax the bow drawn against us. This is the biggest thing about Jesus that we want every single person to know personally, deeply. And trust that the coming weeks, if this is new for you, might be a time where you explore that some more. I'm going to finish there. I'm going to invite the band up who will help us reflect with one last song. And as they do that, would you let me pray on our behalf? Well, Lord God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you have made yourself known in him. We thank you for the Bible that has faithfully recorded him. The record's been accurately passed down to us. Thank you for all the other evidences that we can push and prod to see that that is true so that we might know the truth, that all is not right with us and you, but the truth that you have so loved us to come and get us, to come and relax the bow against us. I want to ask, please, for those who don't know this peace yet with you, that you would bring them to it. For those of us who do, that it might have really meaningful transformation in our life. Fix our eyes afresh on the kingdom to come. You'll deal with everything justly. And and so um, melt our hearts with what you have done for us. That it would mean we would be people of peace to those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.